Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Happy New Week, everybody. I'm Mark Watson, sometimes regarded as quite a sort of hard-living, hard-drinking character, and Michael can come across quite sort of soft and benign but here we have a role reversal i am in my parents living room and michael is wrecked is that fair michael i would say so i'm a husk of a man decaying from the inside i went to manchester for the weekend and what he means is he's been out in manchester (laughs) (laughs) canal street is rotten rotten but i'm having a lovely little decompress now that's what michael's been doing well i've been drinking sherry with chris and margaret watson so who's the bad boy now (laughs) oh we're all bad boys in our own way and talking of bad boys although who knows whether they're a boy or anything really it's Jamie. Hello, Jamie, who's joined us on the Mankind Patreon. Lovely to have you with us. Had the best of Mondays, I suppose, is what we say. That was a delightful forced segue. We've got no evidence that Jamie regards themselves as a bad boy, or as you say, a boy. But still, welcome, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Jamie. And also this week, we welcome lovely Freddie McConnell to the podcast. As you'll remember, if you were listening last week, Freddie's story is a remarkable one. He is a trans man who gave birth, as chronicled in the film Seahorse, about him, which we set as homework last week, and some of you will have watched it, but it doesn't matter whether you have, you're going to just sit back and enjoy what I think was a pretty unusual conversation. So enjoy the episode, as I'm sure you will. I think you will. So this week, Mark's here, always is, and Freddie's here. Hello, Freddie McConnell. Who are you, please? Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I guess I will now attempt to introduce myself. (laughs) I'm a writer and a journalist by trade. I'm a dad. That's sort of what takes up most of my time these days. And I'm a trans man and queer, just for good measure. <laughs> a nice dollop of queerness to pop on the top. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I should say thanks for having me to you as well, Michael, because that was the skimpiest intro you've ever given me. You just said Mark's here, <laughs> barely even acknowledging. Anyway. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mark? No, no. Listeners are familiar with me. Let's get back to Freddie. <laughs> and Freddie, the circumstances in which you became a dad are 
one of the big things you're known for, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, sure. I It's always hard to know where to start because like, there's various starting points in this process. Mm. So yeah, I started to transition medically in my mid-20s. And at that point, I was under the impression that transition would make me infertile. That's what I was effectively told by doctors. Thought that for a few years and then discovered through community online that that wasn't true. And then wrestled for a couple more years with the idea of like, oh, could I pause my transition and maybe go off testosterone and conceive and be pregnant like I've seen other guys doing? Then eventually realized, yes, I think I can do that. I've got the support of my family and I was in quite a good place with my career. I'd been a journalist for a few years then. So, yeah, that's what I did. I stopped testosterone, conceived and had my son in 2018 by myself. I was a solo parent by choice. Uh, and still am. Well, there are a lot of aspects of the story that are real eye-openers. Is it still true to say, do you think, that most people undergoing transition believe that it will make them infertile? It, it seems from everything I've read about you that that is a pretty commonly accepted thing, which is astonishing. I mean, the difference between that being true and not being true is life-changing. Mm. 100%. I mean, from my perspective and from the perspective of my community, it's very hard not to see it as a huge scandal and a human rights violation. Yeah. I mean, in some countries, transition is only kind of granted if you are forcibly sterilized in other words you have a hysterectomy we've never had that rule in this country and the government sometimes likes to kind of brag about that as if it's sort of a big achievement but they just sort of conveniently overlook the fact that nhs doctors are still effectively telling trans men they might not be explicit about it but there's a consent form that you sign when you start testosterone which sort of says you know i acknowledge that this may make me infertile So you kind of then have to unpick that. And really what it is, is there's no evidence that testosterone causes infertility. And now there is an increasing, exponentially increasing amount of evidence that it doesn't in the shape of people like me. Mm. (laughs) And there's hundreds of us, if not thousands, all around the world, some of whom go off tea after like 15 years. You provided the most definitive evidence anyone could ask for, I suppose (laughs) you could say. (laughs) Yeah. And there are now some studies actually being done. Like there's one in America that has just been done by a fertility clinic in Boston to actually back this up as well, which is really useful. So yeah, we shouldn't be told that. And we also shouldn't be told things that go on the side of that, like trans men are told that testosterone increases their chances of certain cancers, so they should have a hysterectomy after so many years on T. There's also no evidence for that. So a lot of trans men have these hysterectomies and then have to go through a kind of retroactive grieving process for their fertility because they might not have even realized they could preserve their eggs and then they have a hysterectomy under false pretenses of this heightened cancer risk. And then they realize none of that is true I mean, that's huge. Yeah. So it's um, it's really hard to bring attention to. We're trying to draw attention to what's going on and, and hopefully sort of through community spreading awareness, people like me don't have to go through that process of understanding the truth sort of just in time almost. Yeah, a lot of people listening won't be aware that there have been any trans men who have given birth, I think it's fair to say, but across the world, there are a considerable number by the look of it. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. As usual with these things, there's no stats because mm. people like me are, are usually invisible. But there was one interesting, in Australia, they record gender for every section of the health service. It's kind of a quirk. It's not like a trans-inclusive thing. It just happens to benefit us. But that includes pregnancy care, right? So they just, by accident, recorded the fact that in, I think, of like a three-year time span, 257 or something men gave birth in Australia alone. 
So that's this one thing we have. <laughs> yeah, that data is an accidental consequence of the way that they log it, which yeah. makes you wonder what those stats would be like if every country deliberately did do that. Yeah, for sure. I was reading a brilliant Guardian article that I think came out around the same time as Seahorse, the film, if people aren't aware, really brilliant film about Freddie's pregnancy and birth. But it was an article about it and they were saying that there's lots of first men to have given birth in the UK <laughs> because this is so secret, no one knows about it. Absolutely. It's like if you go to a conference about trans health or trans pregnancy even, which there are a couple, now that exists that's everyone's opening joke <laughs> i was the sixth first pregnant trans man blah blah blah. you know <laughs> it's a bad joke but yeah we can't help it <laughs> i suppose it's partly because the press love headlines like first trans man gives birth mm. oh, yeah. they're happy doing that every five years even if it's not true <laughs> oh yeah they've got no reason to tell the truth or help us spread awareness for the kind of actual problems that the community faces which is a constant frustration <laughs> of course but, yeah. the media not being honest or helpful i can't believe oh, it oh my <laughs> <laughs> we often start off we've kind of div- divin what's that dove what do you say? Dived? We've dived. That's the I'm word. I'm happier with dived. I definitely don't think divin is going to get us anywhere. <laughs> well, considering we've divin straight into the centre of that, let's take you all the way back. We often ask people about their first brush with masculinity, what masculinity looked like to them and what it felt like. Can you explain that a bit for you? Yeah, I was having a think about this and I was sort of thinking about who were the men that I first looked up to and I thought that's not really quite right because I don't think I was aware of that being linked to masculinity or even the concept of masculinity in a positive sense from a young age. Mm. And then I realized, oh, actually, I think the first time I was made aware of masculinity was through being bullied. And I'd sort of forgotten about that. And at school, I just remember being told, if you didn't do dot, 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 you wouldn't be so masculine. Or just why are you so masculine? Why do you wear those shoes? Why do you stand like that? Literally, I remember being told by a boy in my year and probably like around 14, 15 if you didn't stand like that, you wouldn't look so manly. And like, I hadn't done anything to provoke him saying that. <laughs> mm. And I always remember feeling a bit blindsided by this commentary that I was given about myself that I didn't really understand. I knew it was meant to be shaming, but to me, I felt this weird mix of like shame, but also affirmation. Even then, this is way before I ever heard of the terms trans or, you know, knew that was a possibility. So yeah, I was, you know, made aware of the idea of masculinity as being something I needed to avoid but felt like it was clearly just some inherent part of me. So like, oh my God, there's a problem there. (laughs) And I just didn't really know. Mm. No one's talked to about it kind of thing. It's an odd thing how often these problems come up out of nowhere. We've had a number of people answer this question with similar stories of unsolicited feedback. Like if you didn't stand like that, if you didn't play with that thing, if your feet were turned out, all this sort of thing. And as you say, they're very rarely in response to something you've asked. We seem to have a tendency to just compulsively comment on how well or otherwise people are living up to what we think they are. Mm. But then I think also lots of the guests we've spoken to tend to sort of think of it in a way that they have been doing something wrong that doesn't make them masculine enough. Whereas it seems like you're obviously getting the flip side of that, which is really fascinating. And that there was behaviours that you were exhibiting, probably unconsciously at the time, that seemed to quote unquote masculine. When did you start to kind of go, right, actually, this body isn't right for me. I need to change the outward side of me. How did that kind of start to develop? I mean, really, that only occurred to me when I realized it was a possibility. Yeah. Right. Okay. Which was when I was at university. Yeah. I think people find it hard to wrap their heads around or maybe like empathize with. And it's a cliche, obviously, but you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. Like, how could you have got to the age of 24 ish? I can't remember exactly without realizing that there was such a thing as a trans man or 
But like, we also really quickly just forget how quickly things have changed. Yeah. And the fact that a concept literally did not exist. <laughs> mm. And the idea of a transsexual was like something offensive, I won't describe, but just a joke, basically, or a pantomime dame or a drag queen or someone who was like definitely kind of mentally ill and bad in every conceivable way and scary and not someone I ever wanted to be associated with. But yeah, like the other side of that just couldn't imagine it. Yeah, I don't think that the verb transitioning and everything that goes with that has been in common use for more than a handful of years, really. I don't think you'd see it in the press or in popular accounts of culture or anything. Mm. And if we don't have words for things that are in everyday use, as you say, we don't have concepts. Mm. Also, I think with trans men, there's this added layer of stuff you have to push through because like strong girls or butch women are kind of celebrated to an extent like not always obviously and you know there's huge problems that the lesbian community faces but it's not like when you are a feminine boy Mm. and you're constantly made to feel like what you are is wrong and you're maybe pushed along that path of self-discovery a bit sooner like I just got told I was a tomboy and I got constantly Mm. told I was a lesbian and I knew I wasn't attracted to women I've always been attracted to men and still am although now sort of a bit more fluid in that kind of space but I was just like, none of this makes sense to me. So I'm just going to ignore it. I mean, when I was very young, I used to proudly talk about growing up and having a sex change, but probably around the age of about six or seven, I got the strong message that that was a really embarrassing and weird thing to say. (laughs) So stop doing that. Doesn't play well in the playground, that sort of thing. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at that age. Yeah. So then I just sort of thought, well, more people feel like me, but I'm not going to talk about it. And then I had friends who were sort of tomboys who then got to their teenage years and like discovered femininity to a greater or lesser extent. And I just never did. And my mum would say things like, you know, it'll happen. Like, don't worry. You know, she was always very affirming and supportive. So again, I think that stopped me from going any deeper. And then, yeah, by university, like I hadn't changed. I was still the same person. And mm. one day I was on the early version of YouTube and saw a pirated documentary about a trans boy in the US and my head exploded. And that was it. <laughs> and of course, that is part of the media as well. It's easy for us to talk about it negatively, but it's also kind of astonishing to think that you needed YouTube to demonstrate that your existence was a thing, basically, was valid. Mm, absolutely. How did you find the social transition of it personally? I mean, seeing people start to perceive you as who you've been this entire time and start to use the correct pronouns and starts to, I suppose, treat you differently because you are now presenting to the world as a man. How did that play out for you? It's a funny one. That's a really interesting question. That's not a period of life I get asked much about. And actually, it's not very well understood, I think. We hear a lot in media commentary about trans people having to go through a number of years of sort of proving that they're trans to doctors before they're allowed to access medical treatment. Mm. And I had that same thing, although I think for me, it was a little bit shorter because when I arrived at the gender clinic and also being trans male as opposed to trans female, it was fairly easy for me to exist in a very masculine way. So when I got to the gender clinic, they were pretty happy with how I was presenting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I talked about myself and I was sort of passing with flying colors, (laughs) which is kind of how it feels because you really feel like you're being tested. So there was only about six months to a year where they said, okay, well, this is all great. But what you need to do now is to come out to everyone in your life, change your name and come back in like six months time. And then we can prescribe you tea. And that then triggered the most nightmarish six months of my life where I had to tell everyone that I was a man and expect them to completely change the way that they perceived me and referred to me and everything without me physically changing. I mean, I was sure of myself and I've always felt the same about who I am. I'm also shy and an introvert. 
and socially awkward as all hell. <laughs> so you didn't relish the task of suddenly dropping a bombshell on basically everyone in your life without any actual, as it were, hard proof of it? I just felt we're all going to have to like play along with the idea that I've somehow changed when actually I haven't changed. Yeah. And I know how difficult it is. I'm like empathic person. So I just would die of cringe every time someone <laughs> had to speak to me differently. And yet I hadn't gone for it. It's kind of hard to explain, but I basically went mute for about six months because I could sort of pass as long as I didn't speak. Mm. And I was terrified of making people feel awkward. It's also like very British. Right? I, was just, I just don't want to make a fuss. I, <laughs> and lots of times we'll talk about this. I wish I could just go away for two years and come back and have transitioned. And then like, it would be easy for everyone. Meet everyone as a new version of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't have to go through this awfully awkward second puberty slash transition process in front of everyone. And not only do I have to do that, but I have to do that in a way that I can kind of prove to my doctors, you know, oh, it was just horrendous. <laughs> yeah. And then when I started tea, you know, it was all okay. Again. I mean, one of the crazy things I did was like, I went to Afghanistan for six months when I was waiting for my first gender clinic appointment, because, well, at least if I'm in Afghanistan, I'll be worrying about other things than my gender and I'll be amongst strangers for a while. Basically, the task in front of you was so extreme that you preferred just to take yourself off to Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's weird. I did Arabic at university, so I've been in the Middle East a fair bit. Yeah. And obviously, Afghanistan is not the Middle East. But people talk about, you know, when you're a foreigner in those kinds of countries, you're kind of this weird third gender anyway. Mm. Because if you're being perceived as a foreign woman, you know, you have different privileges, as it were, to like local women and also different ones to local men. And so, sure. yeah, it's kind of funny, but I found it easier. Yeah, it took you out of the arena of men do this, women do that, which was going to be extremely hard for you to be in. Yeah. In that situation. It does make sense. It's just, as you say, quite an extreme solution. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, while I was there, my boss, I told my boss what I was struggling with. And then he was like, well, why don't you socially transition here? And that was weirdly quite simple because also when you have really strict rules for what men and women do in other countries, yeah, that was like totally cool as well. So I actually did also socially transition while I was out there and started teaching boys instead of girls. It was quite a kind of clear delineation and no one had a problem with it, <laughs> which mm. to this day I'm still amazed by and very grateful for. But yeah, that was a um, pretty tricky period of my life because also there's a lot of doubt when you want to transition I think people who aren't trans need to hear that trans people are just like 100% constantly sure of who they are and they never worry about anything when it comes to transition. Yeah. And that's just not true. That's just not accurate. And it wouldn't be a fair thing to expect of any human being going through a massive life change. Yeah. So, you know, I wondered a lot whether I was, you know, if this was the wrong thing, I mean, people would just reject me and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a really stressful time. Mm. And presumably that is fueled by the messaging that's out there that, you know, this is probably just a phase and you hear this a lot with reference to trans kids and, you know, oh, you'll change your mind. All this stuff seems to be everywhere. A hundred percent. It's the worst kind of gaslighting. You're like, I don't think I'm ever going to feel differently about myself. I haven't in the last 24 years. But <laughs> if I do, it sounds like it's going to be the worst possible thing. Jesus, it's totally unfair. <laughs> In the face of all of that, and after six months of mutism, <laughs> how do you start building yourself up again? Mm. Well, I would say the period after that hard period was as incredible as the hard period was hard. Right. Because yeah. it didn't take much. Once I had that testosterone in my system and really quite quickly realized, oh, yes, this is right for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is really right for me. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> I feel incredible. Brilliant. And my voice is dropping and I sound like I feel like I should sound. I look like I feel like I should look. And I'm noticing changes that are really subtle and that no one else is really noticing. But I'm noticing partly because I can see strangers are very quickly reading me as male, which is a really interesting thing in general. I think mm. we default to male as humans in general. And then we kind of change when we see obvious signals of female. 
And that was no longer happening with me. Mm. And so I didn't really have to do anything or make any effort after that point because I just discovered this confidence and was getting all this feedback loop of affirmation of, wow, this is incredible. And yeah, I had lots of online community, other trans men that I could look to. I suppose that's probably the first time in my life I actually feel like I had role models. Mm. Yeah, sort of thinking about role models when I was younger, I couldn't think of any, <laughs> but now I can. And they're kind of all within the trans male community. Yeah, it's not surprising. It's maybe a question which is difficult to ask to someone that's trans, because almost by definition, you haven't seen role models when you were growing up, because that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. It comes back to this thing of not being able to be what you can't see. It makes much more sense that you have role models now at a stage of your life where you are on a path that is the actual path of you, of your personality. But it's funny because that is so obvious in a way, but it's not something I realised until I really thought about it just now. Because mm. I did have people who I kind of idolised when I was younger, like actors and musicians and writers, and they were all male. But I didn't understand my relationship to them. I didn't understand whether I wanted to be them, whether I was idolizing them, whether I fancied them. It was so confusing. So yeah, it's only really now that I'm able to sort of understand my relationship to other people in general. That's a really interesting concept, yeah, actually, in terms of queer men. The book Call Me By Your Name is kind of all about the idea of when you're attracted to men, is it because you physically fancy them and love them? Or is it that you want to be like them? Do you want to emulate them? Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting dichotomy. I've not quite fully fleshed out my thoughts on it but it's nice to hear someone else say it because you kind of think oh <laughs> i'm not the only one <laughs> yeah i mean it's a way in which there's this universal queer experience and then there's sort of subsections of that for different mm. kinds of queer identity and yes i can totally relate to that now as a queer man but before i realized that i was a queer man or could be a queer man I couldn't access any of that or, or feel like it was actually a real experience I was having as opposed to just confusion. Mm. It's very interesting. And I think as a sort of cis straight guy that wants to empathise as wide as possible with everyone, I often think about this term dysphoria and how I can understand it best. And I've seen you say that it's near impossible to define it, but maybe the root of it is something like... <laughs> I thought you were about to say, it's impossible to articulate. Can you give it a go? <laughs> yeah, I, I think having read that it's impossible, I won't put him on the spot. <laughs> but it feels like maybe the core of it is something to do with this idea that you are aware there is some other identity which ought to belong to you but you don't yet know of its existence it feels like that might be quite close to the definition longing for something which you cannot name because you don't know even that it is there yeah definitely words like disconnect that is a really good word to sort of start a conversation about it mm. but then when you try to give examples of what that feels like you just sound well it's not surprising in a way that people just thought that being trans was a mental illness for a long time because that's the only ways we have to think about that kind of thing. And I think basically I feel like there's a different category of experience that trans people have that doesn't have any analogies or good comparisons. But because trans people aren't taken seriously, it's very hard for society as a whole to allow for the idea that there is this completely discrete new experience that we have. So, And then especially when you have anti-trans voices belittling that and making it sound like, oh, I'm not a woman because of some essence or because of some feeling. And it's like, well... You can say it in a way that makes it sound stupid, but trans people are telling you that that's what they experience. So maybe we're not lying. <laughs> like, yeah. Also, it's kind of helpful to think about gender euphoria as the opposite. Yes, the sense of being completely at home with the gender as assigned to you. I mean, the thing is, mm -hmm. this all makes complete sense to anyone that looks back over the history of human experience, because we'll see that most of the experiences discrete from the mainstream start off as being seen as mental illnesses, basically. Mm -hmm. In the same way that any form of depression or anything like that used to be seen as essentially 
literally madness. Mm-hmm. At one time, we only had the pretty crude idea of someone being mad, someone needs to go to an asylum. All those things covered what we now understand as dozens of separate strands of human experience. And this feels like another example of that, which is slow to catch up with the fact that there are things that we don't yet have terms for and fully understand. Yeah. And the easiest thing to do is just dismiss that as someone's brain not working properly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also why it's so painful that trans people and feminists are pitted against each yeah. other in this totally false way. Because, you know, obviously you look back on the history of women's health yeah. and then you have hysteria the idea that of not being taken seriously so that's totally a shared experience that we have yeah. with cis women so yeah it's painful when they can't see that we're fighting similar fights and that kind of thing i was really interested well both in seahorse and lots of stuff about your pregnancy about the kind of it's not a dichotomy but it's a social one that everyone has in their heads of pregnancy and giving birth as being something that defines womanhood How did you process that personally, knowing about your manhood and your masculinity? How did you handle that dichotomy, which doesn't exist, but that we have made exist? Yeah, I think, again, it's a dichotomy that doesn't allow for the existence of trans people. Yeah, Mm. It makes total sense if you think that trans people don't exist and that that's how we thought about it. Well, I don't want to overstate that, because at the same time, I would say that there's been a long history of feminists writing about being anti-essentialist and anti-biological essentialism and anti-sort of saying things like women are defined by their bodies and what their bodies do. And so Absolutely. Yeah. it's not radical from a feminist perspective to say that's not a helpful way of seeing things. And, you know, often we trans people will take sort of transphobic arguments about womanhood and point to like women who don't have uteruses or, uh, mm. you know, women who can't give birth. And it's hard, I think, for people to get their heads around that because it seems so extreme. It's like, well, literally what you're saying then is that someone who doesn't give birth is not a woman. If giving birth is what defines womanhood, like it doesn't make any sense even without trans people. But Mm. (laughs) once we know that trans people do exist, then we uh, can just listen to them when they talk about their experiences. And it doesn't need to change the way women think about their experiences necessarily. You know, if a woman wants to think that giving birth is like the essence of her womanhood and all this sort of stuff, it's kind of woo-woo and I would say, you know, earth-mothery type stuff, it's not my place to say she can't do that. Nothing to do with me. But it's an odd thing underpinning a lot of transphobia, isn't it? That people seem incapable of thinking, this has got nothing to do Mm. with me. (laughs) An awful lot of people who are transphobic seem to automatically assume that their own experience is undermined by the existence of your experience. (laughs) That seems to be what unites transphobes to me. (laughs) Yeah, and they conveniently ignore that there's plenty of cis women out there who don't think of pregnancy as the essential woman, not the essential feminine or the essential anything, or, you know, and who kind of hate pregnancy and... There's lots of, I guess, like subversive ideas about all this stuff that, again, exist without trans people. As you say, many feminists have made the point that the social imperative to have and look after babies is one of the things that's held back the progress of women mm. for, well, forever. <laughs> so given that, it's a bit weird to weaponize the right to give birth as a thing that women lock up and make all of it. You know, it'd be much simpler if we talked about people just each being able to do what they wanted, you might think. Yeah, there's loads of different angles to it. There's like bodily autonomy. There's like the reality of being trans, which is like the majority of trans men don't have genital surgery um, and that's for a whole variety of reasons including the fact that the surgery is extremely complex and mm. lots of people just literally cannot access them it's kind of crude but i always like to point out that if giving birth is me not living as a man then what am i doing every time i go for a week yeah <laughs> you know like and what is every trans well not every but the majority of trans men doing every time we use the bathroom if we haven't had lower surgery am i in that moment not living as a man but then i'm living as a man again when you can see me and you read me as a man like, like schrodinger's we isn't it really if you will michael yes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i think i've seen you say in interviews that you didn't have to grapple with this while pregnant as much as one would expect because people 
simply did not assume that you could be pregnant. People's brains can't put together the idea of man and a pregnancy, so they just thought you were a big guy. Yeah, not even a big guy particularly because I actually carried really small, which mm. was um, kind of a blessing because it just kept me safer and yeah. made it easier for me to still go out. And But yeah, I think even if I hadn't carried small, people wouldn't have read me as a pregnant man because what even is that? <laughs> you know, sort of, And I'm not sure if that would have changed now, even with greater exposure of pregnant trans men in the media. I think on a day-to-day basis, it would still be really unlikely for a trans guy who was pregnant to be read as such. Yeah. And yeah, like nothing about how I felt changed when I went off tea and got pregnant. So I think people often assume that pregnancy for me must have destabilized my identity and that blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that at all. It didn't do any of that. That's kind of an external projection of ideas onto the subjective experience. What was difficult for me was people constantly telling me that, oh, that must be what I'm experiencing. <laughs> no. Yeah. And being in a kind of world that is constantly gendered feminine and female. Mm. It doesn't really make sense that people think that it would undermine your own sense of identity because you chose to get pregnant, right? You deliberately went about that. <laughs> mm. And there isn't some essence of femininity or femaleness that comes with the experience of pregnancy any more than there is of like, being a woman in general, that's yeah. sort of a weird way to think about gender, yeah. It is. I was going to say, presumably, both the process of being pregnant and then the actual process of childbirth, and we see this in the film, mm. it's not as if, I mean, that didn't make you feel like a woman, obviously, from what you're saying. No. It just made you feel like the person that you had set out to be, a pregnant person, because it was something that you wanted. Yeah, I just felt like me doing a thing. I think people, yeah. again, it's like, because people have only ever seen women give birth, mm. they then mistake that for oh, you must feel like a woman when you're giving birth, whatever that means. Mm. And it's just not the case. But I understand. I'm not going to resent it, but it's pretty exhausting. Um, and yeah, just so grateful for the growing community that now exists of seahorse dads, as we call ourselves, because the male seahorses carry and birth their babies. Because yeah, that's grown a lot in the years since I had my first kid and now I'm pregnant again. I feel very differently about it. And there's like tons more people I can look to who are saying examples of how to be out and proud about it. I was just going to ask, I didn't know whether to bring it up, but yes, you're having another kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that I definitely would, but I told myself that it would be like two and done because what I find difficult is being off testosterone, not so much the pregnancy. Uh If I could be pregnant and on tea, I'd feel much more like myself. And so I think it wouldn't be half as hard, but Mm. obviously that's not possible because it would be dangerous to the growing baby. So I'm off testosterone and took me a while longer to conceive this time, which was also really stressful. But thank God this community is now more active and I'm just finding the whole experience a lot less isolating than I did the first time. Can you describe, just again from the point of view of near total ignorance, when you say that being off it makes you feel less like yourself, is that purely to do with just physical changes that happen mm. or is it more than that? I can't tell you, to be honest. You might not know, I guess. It's I don't so know. fundamental. Yeah, it's just it's very interesting. Yeah. And this is not a universal trans male experience, I should say. Mm. You know, it's very common amongst trans men to feel like how I feel, but it's also... There's plenty of people who don't feel this way. And there's guys who stop tea for all sorts of reasons, ranging from kind of medical to financial, or like maybe going on to a really low dose, like kind of micro dosing. So yeah, I cannot tell you why this makes me feel like myself. (laughs) I mean, the physical stuff helps Mm. in a sense that I can see a more true reflection of who I feel I look like in my head when I look in the mirror when I'm on tea. And again, there's really subtle things that only I notice. But in terms of just like, the vibe (laughs) i I can't explain that (laughs) i'm not surprised in a way if these things were easy to explain then you would have had a very different life (laughs) (laughs) there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We spoke a bit further back about how you feel like you have role models now when you did it when you were younger. Who are they? So first and foremost, it is those other dads mm. who have literally taught me how to be public and how to advocate. Could you tell us their names? Just for people who are listening might want to know their names. Sure. So there's one friend in the UK in particular but I mean, there's more, but there's one guy who was pregnant at the same time as me the first time around. And it's funny because he's not at all in the public eye. His name's Jacob. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but he's not at all out there. But in terms of him, it was just showing me how to think about things in a different way. He told me that he never meets new people and lets them think that he's not the person that gave birth to his daughter for more than about five minutes. Mm. Whereas I generally don't share that information unless it's relevant or unless I get to know someone more. And so that made me question, why do I hold back on that front if my friend Jacob can just be like, hey, this is me and I made this. <laughs> so don't think anyone else did this because this is yeah. my hard work and all that kind of stuff. I was like, wow, you are incredible. It is hard work, to be fair. You should claim it. <laughs> exactly. So like <laughs> what kind of internalized transphobia was I carrying there? So he's been an incredible personal role model. And then there's a guy called Danny in the States who taught me about a lot of bodily pride. He shared a lot of photos of his bump when he was pregnant. He also taught me a lot about what it means to kind of raise a child in a more gender creative and gender neutral way, which helped me think about it in a totally different way to the way that it's often talked about sensationally in the media. A guy called Bennett in California, a guy called Caden. Caden actually was the first person who ever introduced me to the idea of trans male pregnancy. Again, just by accident, I just stumbled across it on YouTube and he was pregnant with his first daughter like at least five years ago now. He's recently had another one. Those are the guys. And there's so many more as well that I follow on Instagram and I'm aware of. Yeah. It's great because uh, many times when this comes up, inevitably the role models are people in the public eye because those are the people that are fed to us as role models as we grow up. It's kind of inspiring to hear you derive inspiration examples just from a community that's forming, mm. which hasn't existed for past generations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You said one of the people there was helping you kind of think about parenting in a gender creative way, but single male parenting, you don't see lots of it. How have you found that? And can you explain what you mean by gender? 
gender creative and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the solo male parenting thing definitely was also a bit of a thing I had to work through in terms of carrying within me sort of internalized homophobia, I think, and mm. ideas about parenthood and becoming a parent, you know, helped me realize things like it's parenting that matters, not mothering and fathering. And, and there are so many aspects of parenthood that we gender unnecessarily. Yeah. I read a book by a single adoptive gay dad, which I think he wrote in the 90s. I can't remember what it's called, but that was transformative for me. And there's a lot I can relate to amongst that community of sort of gay single dads or solo dads by choice. So I'm hugely grateful to the dads that have gone before me and like figured all this out a few decades ago now. And then, yeah, gender creative, gender neutral parenting. I just, again, that's something I only kind of really realized the importance of as I was becoming a parent. I thought people who raised their kids as they, them, and to be honest, that they were a little bit extreme. And I thought they were raising their kids to be non-binary. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense because statistically speaking, my kid is not going to be trans. But when I became a dad, I then realized the kind of massive onslaught of gendering that my child was going to be up against for the rest of his life. And I was like, oh, God, I get it now. Like, all you're doing is just protecting them. You're trying to kind of hold back the tidal wave of stereotypes and expectations that are placed on these tiny humans from before they're even born. Mm. Mm. And it's well-intentioned because I think we want to feel like we know our babies and we want to create characters for them and stuff. But that was a huge awakening for me. And I read this book called Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, which was hugely affecting. And yeah, so now I'm like, do you know what? I'm probably going to mostly use gender neutral pronouns for this second kid because if there's anything I can do to save them from gender stereotyping and let them figure out who they are in their truly free way, then I will do that. <laughs> yeah, you're not trying to push them down a particular path. It's the opposite. You're trying to opt out of this very binary fork in the road, which is shoved at people, as you say, right from the outset. Yeah. One of the things that set into my head, I read this article about gender neutral parenting and it was about giving the child a choice. And I think that's what people forget. It's not saying they're going to be raised as non-binary and they'll end up being non-binary for the rest of their lives. It's saying when you're old enough to say that I would like to be this, then the parent goes, great cool we'll call you this and I thought that was a much easier way of understanding what that kind of gender neutral parenting meant was that it's not saying they'll never have a gender it's they'll have the gender that they identify with and they'll tell you what they feel like is that right I think that's right yeah absolutely and it might be more of a mosaic of different characteristics that we don't usually because mm. I think also when people hear that idea of like this kid will tell me who they are when they're older it's like they'll tell me they're a boy and they like blue or they'll tell me they're a girl and they like pink. Yeah. It's not about that either. It's like you are hopefully equipping your child to be the person they were really meant to be and the fullest person they could be. And there was that BBC documentary a few years ago that showed that adults played with babies differently according to whether they thought the babies were male or female. Yeah. That is wild to me. <laughs> yeah. So much of this is unconscious that we struggle with to get our heads around how much we are doing it and we feel defensive about it, which I think is really unhelpful. Yeah, stuff about people hold the baby facing them more if it's seen as one gender or the other. And I think talk to, in inverted commas, girl babies yeah, more. Talk to girls stuff more. like that is just quite amazing, as you say, really, when you think about how little agency the kids that size have got in any of these decisions. Yeah, and it's really quite a recent thing, weirdly, like throughout the last few hundred years of human history, up until about the 50s, 60s, 70s, babies really were babies. And it was considered very, I don't know, uncouth or uncivilized to gender a baby. So they all had like white dresses and long hair. Yeah. And then it was only with like the dawn of marketing and consumerism that gender for kids really was invented <laughs> because it was loop shift. Yeah, absolutely yeah you sell more stuff <laughs> it's not just santa that became red because of kim <laughs> <No>. <laughs> indeed yeah 
the idea of a mosaic of characteristics sort of leads quite nicely into our final question. I thought that might be the segue that you used, and I liked it. Thank I liked you. it a lot. <laughs> but it is, it's a nice way of thinking about it. We used to call it Build a Bear, and then Build a Bear just didn't give us a sponsorship. So I'm now going to take mosaic of characteristics from you. <laughs> to be fair, we never asked Build a Bear for sponsorship. We just True. thought that if we mentioned them enough, it would sort of fall into our lap. But I do still feel personally slighted by it. Resentful, yeah. yeah. But in terms of mosaic characteristics, we look at three qualities that you might build into the ideal kind of person or vision of masculinity if that's how you'd like to take it do you have three characteristics i mean it's quite interesting to ask a parent i suppose because sort of what you're doing right well yeah that was my first thought well i kind of am building a man Mm. but then i was like no i'm not (laughs) (laughs) because any parent will know that you have actually very little control over who your kid is and you know what they're into or what they're going to do i can only agree with that yeah right yeah we were at service station the other day and my kid only wanted an ice cream and then when i finally gave in he said to me I'm glad we've made a decision on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I've seen that sort of tactics. Right. It's free. It's terrifying. But I could say the things, I mean, certainly, again, going back to that gender neutral parenting thing, I really hope that my kid does have. I was trying to like think of what this quality is and whether it even exists because like I'm not sure there's anything that could really bring a child through childhood unscathed by gender stereotypes and expectations but maybe there's a kind of confidence that a kid could have that would allow them to be themselves no matter what and obviously there are some people who grow up to express really different kinds of identities with gender or creativity or whatever it is So I guess like whatever that is (laughs) that enables someone to remain true to themselves. Like a confidence in yourself rather than a self-confidence. Yeah, absolutely. A sense of self and a sense that Mm. being yourself is great and wonderful and positive. And especially, you know, when we're talking about boys, whatever it is that turns them into like sexist little bastards when they become teenagers, being able to withhold that. And then with that, the next thing I thought was a healthy questioning of authority. That's what I'd want. Because yeah. I think when it comes to like masculinity, you have to question a lot of what you're told in terms of your male privilege and what being a man means in this world. And yeah, if a boy can do that, then hopefully they'll kind of be okay. That's a really nice one, actually. Not one we've heard before. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Questioning the norms seems more important than ever, really, given how much toxic use of authority and mm-hmm. of platforms there is. Yeah. And tied to the first one, it's sort of saying, is that who I am? And is that what I want? And yeah. if the answer is, yes, I do want that ice cream at that service station, then fine. You question that authority <laughs> exactly. as much as you need to, if that's who you are. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A constant learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one I was thinking what I wish I'd had as a kid which was just well actually it probably comes back to self-confidence um or like a just sort of being motivated and being curious and mm. yeah I really really lacked confidence to a sort of catastrophic degree as a young person and that's obviously partly to do with not knowing who I was and being constantly second-guessed and gaslit by the world but I think a lot of young people go through that so yeah i wish i hadn't kind of had to wait until the age of 30 to feel confident and to be myself and then to go after what i wanted so i'm not sure what our third one is but something like that <laughs> curious i've written down i've written down curious yeah curiosity is good yeah curiosity uh, i think that the sort of work that you're doing and chats like this will enable many more people to find what they actually want before the age of 30 that's the hope <laughs> hopefully yeah well thank you so much for coming and joining us freddie do you have anything you'd like to plug or you'd like to send anybody to have a look or a read or anything really could i say firstly buy sean facebook yeah the transgender issue if you want to understand any of the other media political stuff sean has done it for us yeah and she's an incredible writer and mind 
It's an incredible book, actually. I'm midway through it and I'm trying to savour it because I want to like absorb mm. everything that's been written down. It's amazing. Yeah, I have it with me away here and I'm really looking forward to reading it myself. Yes, and then also I have a, I have a kids' book coming out next year called Little Seahorse. It's being published by Puffin and it's about a seahorse, Papa and his kid, and they can have a conversation about what it takes to make a family and what people really need quote unquote sort of making an allusion to this idea that kids need a mum and a dad and actually they don't <laughs> but what do they really need so it's a cute little story about a family that looks like mine that's amazing that sounds so brilliant yeah that's great comes back to what we were saying earlier about you can't be what you can't see and if children can see books like that then yeah <laughs> it shows there's more possibilities for them than there are limitations absolutely uh, well thank you so much for joining us freddie and i'm looking forward to reading that book <laughs> you'll get through that pretty quick there i reckon michael no <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never know yeah <laughs> see the more adults as well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thanks a lot, Freddie. This has been great. Good. Yeah, I really enjoyed this chat. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And that was Freddie, as we promised, a fascinating conversation. Really, really wonderful. And Freddie's new book called The Little Seahorse and the Big Question is coming out next year. And I think you can pre-order it in various places. Try not Amazon. Try an actual bookshop if you can. Yeah, and I would say, as an author, that uh, pre-orders are enormously welcome because they boost the book's general standing and also they make you feel as if some people in the world care about the thing that you spent absolutely ages doing. So do get behind Freddie's book. A really valuable thing for any kid to read. Yeah, it's really lovely, actually, having had Juno on. Oh, gosh, my voice was went there. Sorry. That's because your life of sin, my voice, <laughs> to catch up with you again. It was really lovely having had Juno on last week and now Freddie on this week, and both are doing some amazing work in getting queer characters into young adult fiction and children's books and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, really gorgeous. They have, and I've noticed that because of the sort of listenership we have, every time we say things like, do support this book or this event, is that people genuinely do do it. You see it on Twitter, and it really is gratifying and, and warming, I think I'd say. Mm, also gratifying fag actually uh, we were together in newcastle at your gig last week and there are a couple of mankind listeners who turned up so hello to them that was lovely to meet them yes and if you think oh i wish i'd been there that must have been a hell of a time with those two guys uh, you can <laughs> see 10 minutes of our conversation on uh, patreon where we put a half-time chat didn't we we did indeed i can't remember what we said to be honest i had a couple of rums but it was a lovely time oh we talked a lot of crap about dubbing versus subtitles and all sorts of other business but it was the longest oh, yes. piece of nonsense we've ever put on patreon i think so <laughs> if that's your sort of thing you can find it at patreon.com forward slash or forward stroke mankind podcast yes and where can they find you doing comedy mark well tonight i'm in bath but i i say that before anyone is listening to this that's the most useless bit of plugging I've ever done <laughs> yesterday I was in Bath <laughs> but be aware I have been in Bath um, <laughs> oh, there are so many dates coming up and as you say I have had the pleasure of seeing a couple of Mankind uh, listeners once again this week I met some in Devon the simplest thing to do is go to Mark Watson the Comedian com and there is a daunting looking list of gigs there and there will pretty much be one near your home uh, unless you have chosen a strange place to live Ah, uh, no, I suppose there are places like Orkney and Shetland. If you go far enough to the north of Scotland, that's a lovely place to live, but I'm not going there. Almost anywhere else is covered at some point. <laughs> Next week, we have the lovely, brilliant, gorgeous, funny Susie Ruffle, who is also a podcaster. Um, we absolutely adore her, don't we? Yes, and it has a very successful, po- at least one successful podcast, as far as I know. So uh, it'll probably be another one of these situations where we feel a bit sort of cowed by it because she's not just a good guest, but she seems like she knows how to do podcasts better than us. But there we are. That's happened before. It'll happen again. <laughs> but in the meantime, have a lovely week. And uh, a plug from me, if you see me and want to have me a Barocca and a glass of water at any time this week, that would be very much appreciated. There we go. Come and see me. Medicate my... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye.